Welcome to the Cop Doc Podcast. This podcast explores police leadership issues and innovative ideas. The Cop Doc shares thoughts and ideas as he talks with leaders in policing, communities, academia, and other government agencies. And now, please join Dr. Steve Morielli and industry thought leaders as they share their insights and experience on the Cop Doc Podcast. Hey everybody, Steve Morielli coming to you from South Carolina today. And today we go down to Naples, Florida, beautiful Naples, Florida. We, we talked to Jim Pastor, and he is in Naples, Florida, and a former police officer, a PhD, Dr. Pastor, a JD, and doing some wonderful work, wrote some books, we'll talk about it. The most recent is You Say You Want a Revolution, a compelling and cautionary tale on what lies ahead. So good morning to you, Jim. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. I think that this is going to be a very interesting interesting episode because, and I know when you were a police officer, I want you to talk about your background, but when you're a police officer, you have to be somewhat measured as to what you can say in public. No different than me as a faculty member at a state university now, but because you are released from that, you are retired, you're no longer a police officer, but you have all that experience. You've been a professor, an author, a lawyer. Tell us about yourself and what brings you to writing and what brought you to the Cop Talk podcast. First, thank you for having me again. I'm a kid from the south side of Chicago. I, I grew up in a very working class neighborhood. Father was a steel worker and my friends went to the trades and steel mills and I became a cop and I had this idea of being in the FBI as a kid and uh, I started on the Chicago Police Department 40 years ago. It was a great opportunity back then. I came in with, with a bachelor's degree in law enforcement and sociology, which was rather unusual back then. There weren't a lot of educated people cops back then. Right. And, you know, through the years, I progressed. I had this idea that you keep learning and working, and I loved the things that I was doing. And I went to graduate school, I went to law school, and then I got my PhD, all while working and or writing. And I've had a what I'd call a labor of love over the years, all in, or, in and around policing, public safety, and security. I'm currently legal counsel for an electronic security firm, and I have a small consulting business where I do expert witness work. And then I write. The book, You Say You Want a Revolution, is a labor of love. I've studied terrorism for many years. Uh, back in the day, uh, I was one of my mentors was Dick Ward. Uh, was oh my a, goodness, uh, Dick! And uh, I was, it was so yeah. so bad to see and, him and, leave. Yes, I know Dick very well. Or I knew yes, him. Yes, he he was NYPD detective, and and ultimately he pretty much ran the University of Illinois at Chicago when I was there working on my uh, master's and then PhD. Mm-hmm. And he used to have a terrorism conference every year, and I was this young kid, twenty four years old, with all kind of alphabet people in the audience, you know, FBI, CIA, ATF, DEA. It was fascinating to me. And at the time, it was a time in the American history, just early to mid-80s, when there was a lot of concern with terrorism. And, and I think we're coming back around to that. So what I was fascinated with back then was 
why people have the fanatical mindsets, why ideologies grow and what feeds them and how those things can be addressed both from a law enforcement or from a societal perspective. Mm -hmm. There's a long tentacle story over the years, but why I wrote this book is because I think we're in very, very dangerous times. I call it a revolutionary climate. And I, what happened in Israel... Just going to say that. I think that's really, a telling. Yes. So I don't know. I mean, I could keep going. There's so much to say. Mm-hmm. And I'm fascinated around the topic intellectually and academically. But mm-hmm. it's also, it's us. It's it's who we are. It's, it's life. It's our life. I was yes. just going to say that. And I think those who are listening, and so many are faculty members, students, and police officers, and those who are scholars and such... Can and benefit from this. I believe when you look at the book and as you look chapter by chapter, it's really fascinating. It's well-researched and obviously, like you say, a labor of love. It's not the first thing you've written, but one of the things you start with is talking about race, religion, and politics. And I do believe that race and religion play a very, very big role. We talk about oppression, oppression with the Palestinians at the Gaza Strip, and did that cause the attack on Israel, the situation where you have hostages being taken and the threat of being killed one by one is just chilling. I know it seems like far, far away, but I'm sure you and I was just engaged in a course last night, graduate course on border security, and we talked about what was going on as we're talking about now in Israel. Could that have an impact in the United States? I think so many of us think, eh, that's way, way far away. I would hasten to say that this is a problem that may come our way and we need to be ready. Would you agree? I uh, totally I think you see uh, small indicators of that already with some of the protests and counter protests in the streets. Sorry, we just had a disruption in our internet connectivity and we were talking about what's going on and how people are railing for both sides here in the United States. And certainly we have seen over and over and over again different groups, radical units, and those who are sort of counterculture thinkers that are putting police in the middle. And I think that's really important. Let's talk about that because imagine the job of a police officer. You and I were in the business for an awfully long time a while ago, but it's so much more difficult now. And so here police are marshaled to come and allow sometimes illegal or an illegal gathering where two factions are railing against each other and you're in the you're in the middle you know you're trying to allow for free speech but also make sure that it doesn't get out of hand talk about that and how difficult that is for police organizations it's extraordinarily difficult but the thin blue line is becoming thinner and more problematic and more difficult to manage these entities are designed essentially to maintain law and order and part of the law of course is to allow protests first amendment rights are hugely important in this country as is public safety and there's a very fine line between what can be allowed in the public square and particularly when you have a counter protest situation and that's where the volatile nature of these issues that are so embedded into people's lives this is where ideology plays such a huge role in that the thinking is so embedded in people's minds and lives. And there's essentially what I would call a collision course that we're on where the reasonable people, the reasonable minds are becoming less common. And what is more strident is becoming more frequent. 
Mm-hmm. Because these conflicts or protests can turn into demonstrations and then chaos, the police are in a very delicate situation. And how do you manage that is a kind of a case-by-case analysis. But what I looked at is the larger trends to say that these things are happening. This is why they're happening. And in the middle is the canaries in the coal mine, which you can see as the police. And when police are targeted, it just creates that additional stress on society, the, the dynamic of attacking the police and attacking police entities or institutions mm-hmm. are such that it breaks down that thin blue line into a sieve. And that is why I wrote the book, because I can hearken back to a book I wrote in 2008, which was called Terrorism and Public Safety Policing, Implications for the Obama Presidency. And at that time, it was my opinion that we were getting to a very, very delicate, racially impugned situation where where race was playing a role, where the first black president was coming aboard. And there was a lot of people who were unhappy about that. Mm-hmm. And at the time, the society darkened a post-racial America. And I wrote about this in my new book. Mm-hmm. How can you become post-racial and then 12 years later become systematically racist? It's almost we're on a Ferris wheel. It's a titty totter mm-hmm. where we are declared post-racial and then we become systematically racist. It's impossible to be both. Systematically racist is essentially you know, embedded with racism throughout your society, throughout your system. Post-racial is to say that you don't care about race anymore. So in this yeah, what is, is where it? we're You're at. asking, what is it? It's even yeah, more, right? Uh, and that's right. And so it's because these things are so deep-seated, we are creating a circumstance. Who's the we? I got ideas about who the we is. There's a lot of things driving this collision course that the reason why I cared about it so much is because of the police, mm-hmm. because they're the ones caught in the mix. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who are going to have to deal with the fallout and be directly affected by it. The police shooting or police-involved attacks are becoming more frequent, as are police suicide, as are a very delicate situation where the psyche of the average police officer and how the job is done has changed dramatically from what I saw 40 years ago. And I care about the police, but I, you know, I care even more about society. If you affect the police, you affect society. We're talking to Jim Pastor. Dr. Jim Pastor, he is in Naples, Florida, former Chicago police officer, an educator, a writer, obviously a lawyer and a PhD. And we're talking about society and we're talking about how police are drawn into the middle. Actually, Jim, one of the things that I am beginning to write about is socio-political risk in policing and something that police managers don't think that they are drawn into social issues. They are drawn into political issues, you know, just as we're talking about. But as I read the book and I read pieces of your book and the book is called, You Say You Want a Revolution, a take off on the Beatles. You talk about race, religion, and politics, but what I find here, you start talking about Charlottesville and what happened there. We talk about critical race theory. You talk about white privilege. You talk about a third rail, wokeism in the culture war, the national anthem, an attack on the American flag, mob action. You talk about religion, but then you go on to talk about extremist ideologies in the capitalist system and the attack of the capitalist system, and it could be very well what's going on over there in the Middle East. You talk about single interest groups, and I just want 
the audience to know what you are writing about. Anti-abortion, animal rights, radical environmentalists, MS-13, Marxists, urban street gangs. You talk about Antifa as anarchists and the Boogaloo Boys. You're talking about fascism, right-wing. just goes on and on. Right-wing fascism, anti-government groups and racial and hate groups and national racist groups. The Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, the Aryan Brotherhood, Proud Boys. And all of this, is, which is crazy, but then you go on to talk about reimagining policing. It's pretty hard to reimagine policing, even though it might be forced on us, when in many cases, if you think about Portland and Seattle, that the police were under siege. How do you reform while you're trying to just protect the people who are protecting society? I mean, big questions. Huge questions. And during the summer of 2020, I think there was a knee-jerk reaction to the George Floyd killing, which was no one could defend that. I haven't heard one police officer and all the people that I know mm-hmm. try to defend that mm-hmm. in any real way. Mm-hmm. But it's one man and you know, 800,000 or 750,000 police officers in this country. And it turned the world upside down in a sense of police. And I say in my book that it's changed policing for the foreseeable future. What it's going to look like going forward is still a question. And I offer up what I call public safety policing, where I have three crucial elements of what that looks like. To your larger point, all those ideologies are all, and I use a diagram in my book where I have the capitalistic system and around them is all the various ideologies. And they're all, all of them look to destroy the system. And with the police being the most visible representative of the system, they are inevitably tied to the system and then tied to the impact of these ideologies. And they're coming. And the way I see ideologies is it's a tit for tat. The more the the one stands up, the more likely the other will stand up. And I use this principle, and this is something that most people don't want to understand or our biases do not allow us to really get our arms around. And this is the principle. If you ignore or appease one extreme and you demonize and attack the other extreme, you'll get more of both. And that's what I think is happening in this country. There's enough people on both sides of the spectrum that are supporting these extremist thinking that are inevitably creating our own demise, if you will. And I use a quote in my book where Lincoln, President Lincoln in the 1840s basically said, if we lose this society, if we lose this country, it won't be because of foreign troops crossing the Ohio River. It will be because of our own divide. That's what I see is happening in this country in a very dangerous way. And the Israeli war and the the incident with Hamas is one of those triggers that we start to see the, the lines being hardened and people's mindsets becoming more and more uh, strident to, to either side. And how it plays, the book was either an attempt to find a reasonable ground or it's a warning. I don't know what it is. And I can tell you this, and for whatever it's worth, thank you for putting a book called Revolution on your podcast, because a lot of people don't want to touch it. And why? Because it's so potentially volatile Mm -hmm. that people are afraid to think about what this may mean to their life. But when you look at the title, some might think that you are proposing a revolution. 
revolution. But what you're saying is that it's in the country. We are so divided, both politically and in belief, conservative versus liberal, whatever that is. And it's so hard to avoid the conversation. Having the conversation is very important. And you know, you were on campuses for a long, long time. It strikes me that campuses across the country are supposed to allow for dialogue. And that's not always happening. It really isn't to the point where if you are a conservative and I hold myself as a conservative, I have to bite my tongue. I have to keep my thoughts to myself. You know, Jim, as a former police officer, you know, as a former law enforcement officer, you know that there are people on campus that have nothing but disdain for criminal justice, nothing but disdain yeah. for me as a professor. I'm not saying it's it's a great number, but it, like everything else we're talking about, there is an undercurrent to say, you are an apologist for police. When people don't understand what I am and what I believe in, I don't like bad police officers any more than you do. I can't imagine a country without policing and how it would go into utter chaos. It is. It's inherent in human nature. This is where most people don't really want to get to the basis of who we are as people. We need order. People crave for order. And without an enforcing arm in a country, you will open up Pandora's box, so to speak. But let me just say, yes, the title sounds like I want to advocate for it, but really, it's the first line of the song Revolution and the Beatles in 68 said, essentially, be careful what you ask for, folks. So I use that as a jumping off point to say, the Beatles said the same thing. If you want money for people with minds that hate, well, brother, you have to wait. And we have a lot of hate going on. And my point was to say, just as the Beatles in 68 put a lid on a revolutionary environment that was percolating back then, what I'm trying to do is put another lid on a revolutionary environment that is percolating now, but in a much more dangerous fashion. Because back in 68, there wasn't a right-wing counter-revolution mindset that was out there. It was mostly, almost exclusively, driven from the left. So now you have an element of a counterweight, if you will, that is pushing the envelope and creating a kind of that collision course in a way that we didn't have in the 60s. So I say this, this is not my idea, folks. This is what they're saying. And I, one of the things I've learned from Dick Ward over the years is pay attention to what the terrorists are telling you because mm -hmm. they're telling you what they're going to do. Yeah, listen. They're saying it. Mm -hmm. They're telling you loud and clear what their minds are and what their attitudes are and what their intentions are. Mm -hmm. So you look at their ideologies and you say to yourself, oh, I either ignore that as just puff or I take it seriously. And I've been around the block long enough to know that you ought to take it seriously because some of these people are dead serious in their intents. Mm -hmm. And again, this is not something that most people want to talk about. No. But if we don't talk about it, we're going to get it. I keep cutting you off because you kept me thinking about so many things and I hope the audience is thinking the same thing. Like, what do we do? Is this a wake-up call? Should we be paying attention? Is a potential attack just for, for attack's sake to attack the capitalist system of the United States or any Democrat society is that in the offing is there so much anger that's out there that we should be on alert i mean 
that's a real problem. And then you think about, Jim, just to bring it a little bit forward, talking about the Islamist actors out there, what about our own cities? Look at the lawlessness that we're watching on television, where there are groups of people. It baffles me when you see a group of people who are using social media to amass and attack and overrun a store and then go on to the next one a couple of days later. And the police are outnumbered. They are outflanked. And in some cases, you've got politicians saying, stand down. Yeah, well, one of my titles of my chapter four is Reimagining Policing from Defunding to Lawlessness. Yes. And I lay out the reasons why lawlessness will increase and why lawlessness could be seen as a indicator for the destruction of capitalism. Look what happens in these scenarios that you're describing. You have these mobs going in, grabbing anything they want in a store or greatly affecting the commerce in a business district. What do businesses do? Many of them are just shutting down. And so what do you do when you shut down a Walgreens or CVS or even, you know, some Neiman Market? or target target yeah, is in the just, middle of it yes yeah and you just shut it down what do you affect the way commerce is done you affect the capitalistic system well you begin you to o- the- you begin to oppress the very people who need this absolutely the woman who's got three kids that doesn't have a car that relies on the CVS to go to the store now it isn't there anymore mm-hmm. and so what do you do there's so many parts of this and this mm-hmm. animates me in a way because those mob actions are really also political. And that's where people, they see these as a bunch of, you know, criminal actors. Yeah, but they're criminal actors designed or intending to do something bigger than just steal. Mm-hmm. There's a momentum and there's a logic in lawlessness. And it's like a cancer. If you have a cancer in your body, it will continue to grow unless it's addressed. Mm-hmm. And we are afraid to address those things because it's going to speak to a racial incident. What are a lot of urban leaders doing? They're sitting on their hands because they're afraid. Or now they're blaming the the businesses for not having enough security. That's a classic juxtaposition. It's not my job to stop the looting. It's your job to stop the looting. It's what society in America believes, that the government is responsible to maintain security and protect. And so I think in a lot of ways, what we're seeing as capital or for-profit organizations are saying, I'm not staying in this city because you can't protect me. There's a statement that's being made there. Absolutely. And you know, I said it in my book. Now the book is a little, I wrote it mostly during 2021. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of what I said in the book is happening now. It's ahead of its time. It's percolating because what you do is you look at the tea leaves and you start to kind of, all right, how is this going to play? How is this going to play? Well, it's playing out as I said in the book. And that is businesses will take the bottom line and say, wait a minute, we can't continue to lose money. Mm -hmm. We're just going. We're going to shut it down and we're going to do business where we can't. Now, that may shift even more business to uh, online shopping and things like that. There may be some actual alternative available, but for some people, it's not a real good alternative. But more importantly, for the social structure, for social cohesion, for the viability of our urban areas, it is huge hugely detrimental. Mm -hmm. And how 
this gets solved is what I offer up is public safety policing, emphasis on order maintenance, technology, and then what I call protective measures, which is both police officers protecting themselves and the public. And that may require police officers arming up in a way that a lot of people don't feel comfortable with. So it's a very interesting dynamic. Mm -hmm. And I admire and appreciate the average cop that's out there. And I speak to them and my heart goes out to them. But when you talk earlier about the police leaders not wanting to get involved with politics, really, for me, this is policy. I have a PhD in public policy. Policies matter. And okay, politics is often tied to policies. It's really the policies that drive human behavior. Mm-hmm. And the incentives we either give people to abide the law or the incentives we give them to ignore the law. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're doing now is giving more incentives to the law violators mm-hmm. than we are to the law abider. We're talking to Jim Pastor, and he is an author, a PhD, a JD, and a former police officer out of Chicago. And he has written a number of books. The book we're focusing on, as you say, you want a revolution. And one of the things that I'm hearing is what you're talking about is policy, I understand, and what began to happen a few years ago was the same thing, that prosecutors would come in and run on the idea, the premise, that they were not going to enforce minor laws, and those laws perhaps that were targeted at the inner city, at minorities. And when there is no consequence, very often there's lawlessness. If you're not going to put me in jail, then I'll do what I can do. And so the revolving door happens. The police put handcuffs on people. They bring them in. Then they're out. The system handles it. And if the offender is not going to be held to account, there's no consequences. Believe me, as you well know, the signal goes out. Like It doesn't matter. No one's doing anything. Come into the store, steal outwardly. Security's not going to stop you. So just keep coming. And it becomes a devolution in a lot of ways. And that's a real problem. And I'm sure police are sitting and listening today on the sideline thinking, well, what the hell am I going to do? But I want to say is that police leaders, and I do so much training with police leaders, listen, your job is to keep the focus on the mission, even amongst the noise. Make sure that your people are protected and make sure that they do not ignore the law, take action, and you have no control over what happens afterwards. What are your thoughts? Yes, police leaders have to do their job. And so do police officers, for that matter. The problem is what you call devolution, I call momentum. And there's a logic and a momentum to lawlessness, and as you just said. People learn, oh, Tony got away with a bunch of stuff. Look at, hey, well, I'm going to get some for myself. I see this as rational actors. These are not necessarily, yeah, they're criminals because they're committing these kinds of things. But really what they are is rational actors. They're doing what they can get away with. And whatever the system allows them to get away with, wouldn't the rational person do that? Well, there's the incentives that I talked about. How do you manage that from a policing perspective? How does a police chief protect the citizens and his or her officers at the same time? Well, 
what I think is happening more commonly, we have rejected the notion of proactive policing and become police officers in the audience will probably find this somewhat humorous, I hope. There may be a point where police officers turn into firemen, mm-hmm. where they stay in the station until something happens and then they go to mm-hmm. deal with the issue. Mm-hmm. They wait for the claxon to ring and then they go, they respond, right? Correct. So that completely reactive approach is foreign to me. I was a tactical police officer. I stopped probably 5,000 cars. I look for the bad guys. It's important that police officers understand that the proactive approach has historically been the way to reduce crime. It's also, granted, become sometimes done in ways that are wrong. And there is the very fine line. But what I think has happened, because some of those things are very much a discretionary basis, and some of these things can, street stop can go bad in a heartbeat. So I think the emphasis has become just don't do that. Stay in the car and wait for you to be called and then deal with it then. Now, let me interrupt. I understand what you're saying, and I think it's absolutely what happens in many major cities. But my question is, is that what the general public expect in your mind? You know what? They expect not to be harassed, but then they expect to be protected. And what is a funny thing is, who is the bad guy? I can tell you how many times I was asked the question, why are you stopping me? You're stopping me because I'm black. No, I'm stopping you because I am investigating a crime. I don't know if you're a bad guy or a good guy. I just don't know who you are. And so the, the way that the average person sees that is they don't care about it until they're affected. And once they're affected, then they get interested. And I think we're going to find more and more people getting interested about how their communities are policed because if there's a lack of policing, then there's more crime. Mm-hmm. Now, the dynamic of this is even more volatile If policing as a whole doesn't become more proactive, well, what will happen? People will become more self-defensive and they will carry weapons and they will then be their own judge, jury, and executioner, if you will. And I'm saying the, the vigilanteism, right? Yes. If we have created this situation where we're afraid to deal with, to use your analogy earlier, the mobs. If the mobs can't be dealt with, then at some point in time, citizens will deal with the mobs. Mm -hmm. And that's where it gets potentially very volatile. You put the police in the middle as to who are we policing. And if you think about a mob, you think about a mob, it's a flash mob and police show up and you know there's not enough people on the street and three or four or five cars show up. They can't deal with a mob. I mean, you put your hands on one person, you really are taking yourself out of commission and you may be threatened by others who are jumping on you to stop them from from arresting Tony. So very often what happens is that you just stand back for a little bit because you can't outdo a mob of 100 people if there's only three people with a gun and with a taser. I bring up a historical example. Ironically, right before the Civil War, there was a movement called the Wide Awakes. And the Wide Awakes were essentially northerners who decided that they were going to protect 
their communities and protect their politicians who were advocating the prohibition of slavery. Mm. And they sought to create an environment where free men, free land, and essentially freedom. Well, society was breaking down then. So there was a movement that brought to the fore called the Wide Awakes. Now, we have fast forward 160 years. We now have a woke uh, movement on the other side of the realm. And there's going to be a Wide Awake type of situation in the U.S., if we don't get our streets under control, under control, and if we don't get commerce under control, mm-hmm. if our urban areas break down, people will flee that can't flee. And if they're not fleeing, they're going to do something to protect themselves. Human nature is self-protective. That's mm-hmm. in our DNA. Mm-hmm. So. Yes, in your scenario, if there's three police officers on the street and 100 people running around, they have to just stay the course and just observe. be an observer, which it often happens in the case where the stores are hiring security guards to essentially watch people commit crimes. We see that because, all the time. I know. Yeah, because they're afraid to engage. Yeah. And they're outnumbered. Yeah. We're talking to Jim Pastor, and we're having a conversation that is, I won't say much deeper, but it is so so much more important because it talks about society and the way society has evolved, the way we are as a country with our mores. You at the end of your book talk about God, country, and family. There have been some who feel that those core bedrock beliefs in America are eroding. So Jim had written a book, You Say You Want a Revolution, and we're sort of picking apart some of the things that he has talked about. The couple of questions that come to mind for me, Jim, is have you gained traction since writing this book? Are people seeing it, paying attention, understanding it? Are you clairvoyant? Let me answer the the second part first. I am not clairvoyant, but I pay attention. I'm a student of human nature, been a student of society since I was 18 years old. I have a sociology and law enforcement degree. So I guess I was trained to look at sociology was all about deviant behavior and subcultures and things like that. So I pay attention to how people think. And in my humble opinion, the book is ahead of its time. Mm -hmm. And the traction that is coming And there is some coming, but I didn't write the book to make money. I wrote the book as an attempt to find rational heads and also maybe just to warn that if we don't do something significant, we're heading towards this collision course. But that said, in the end, it's what do we look for? What's our purpose in life? Do we see it? as a one with the most toys win? Or is there a larger meaning to our lives? And that's where that last chapter, I tried to pull out what has driven people in this country for millennium. And that is something bigger than ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that we should see things that we are just part of a larger puzzle, if you will, and our country, our family. And ultimately, if you believe in God, the creator is the reason why we are living. You know, Shakespeare, said we are but the actors and the world is a stage. Mm-hmm. So it's disappointing to me on one level that a lot of people in public safety and security don't want to deal with the idea of revolution because they see the title, they're chilled away from it. I think they're afraid of maybe even a cancel culture situation or they just don't want to go to the logical 
end game of what is going on around them. What I say is that end game is percolating and only the good people will stop it from happening. And or maybe there is some rational way to bridge the gap between the extremes that are developing in this country. Well, don't you think that, you know, as you're saying that, I'm thinking to myself, well, define good people and don't get me wrong, but is it my side or your side? Is it liberal or conservative? Is it, and that's the big deal. When you saw what happened on January 6th, what was your reaction to that? Frankly, it was a mob action gone wild. And I see it as a, it cuts both ways. I don't know enough about whether this was, some part of this was egged on by either governmental actors or by essentially others inciting the crowd, or if it was just a crowd that went out of control. It wasn't good. Obviously, any violence, any law-abiding, any hatred is how I break out those people who are good versus them. Or not. I don't have an excuse for anyone who violates the law. That's it. Bottom line. So good people don't violate the law. Now, how do you bridge the gap if the government has created a circumstance where good people say, I have to violate the law? That's a dangerous place to be. And I don't want to go there. And yet, at the same time, we allow riots to occur. I mean, I, I did the stats. There's, I don't know, 700 and some odd riots in the summer of 2020. And then there was a three hour riot in the Capitol. On balance, the riots of 20. 2020 greatly impacted society, in my mind, way more than the riot in the Capitol. Now, neither one were right. You can't appease either side because go with the principle. If you ignore or appease one side and demonize and attack the other, you're going to get more of both. But why was it the overriding emphasis was on the Capitol three-hour riot, and we essentially did the wink and the nod for a summer of law. You can't reconcile the two. Both were wrong, but we have attacked one and ignored the other. That's dangerous in my mind. Now, we can get into reasons why the riots of 2020 went out and how provocateurs were in the crowd in the riots in the cities, just why there were provocateurs in the crowd in the riots in the Capitol. In the end of the day, Steve, good people in my mind don't hate, don't commit crime, don't commit violence. Mm -hmm. Now, then there's those exceptions, and I don't know how to manage that. And unfortunately, government's job is to, number one duty is to protect the citizens. The failure to government to do that leads to these other very dicey situations Mm -hmm. where we lose the perspective of what is right and wrong. That's dangerous. It is dangerous. We're talking to Jim Pastor and you're listening to the Cop Talk Podcast. I'm Steve Morielli and we're talking about some pretty deep, deep situations and deep issues in America and beyond. I wrote a few things down and we need to wind down in a few moments. But one of the things that I wrote down was patriotism, which is, I guess what you would say, God, family and country. What do you think is happening? Why are there so many people who are speaking out against the United States as a principle, as a belief, as a country supposedly of freedom and and rights? Where's that coming from? Well, you can argue it's coming from the vice of the ideologies that believe that a nationalistic approach, which is essentially what patriotism is, 
is not healthy for this globe. And nationalistic thinking causes wars. And so thus, the solution to mankind's ills is a globalist government that takes away the idea of patriotism and then takes the dynamics of the competition that goes to patriotism and nationalistic thinking out of the equation. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons why we are in a quagmire as a country is there's a lot of people in this country that don't really care about the country. They care about the globe. Mm-hmm. And if the solution is to save the world, then maybe one of the solutions is to diminish the country. And I think you could see that at the southern border, the idea of a border and sovereignty has become almost repulsive to a lot of people. And so if you're seeking a globalist solution, you don't want a strong United States because that would stand in the way of a one world government mindset. Now, that is a lot bigger than most people want to go. To me, you have to ask the question like a rational actor. Why would you defund policing to upset the apple cart in the United States in terms of its ability to govern itself? Why would you open up the southern border? Why would you leave Afghanistan in a way that you did with billions of dollars of munitions that now have allegedly some of them landed in Hamas's hands? Mm-hmm. Why would you do those things to country was your desire to maintain the integrity of the country. If you look at, and that's what I did in my book, I took the capitalistic system and I took the various ideologies and I put it around it and said, every one of these ideologies wants to destroy the capitalistic system. And the capitalistic system is embedded in the notion of sovereignty and patriotism in this country. So this is big, and I can't say that everyone who desires to let in migrants from the southern border wants a globalistic system, but I can say the end result of that policy is to foster that. Mm-hmm. So, so, so let me interrupt you again. Let me ask you this question as we wind down. How do police respond to all of the things we're talking about? Have they shut us off because we're talking so big, so global? This hasn't got anything to do with me and the Chicago Police Department or the Boston Police Department or the San Francisco Police Department. And I'm just throwing so many things at you. But what strikes me is that conundrum that we put police in sometimes when politicians decide what laws they wish to enforce, that when they tell police you will not deal with GSA police protecting the federal building, we're not going to protect it. That's their job, which is crazy. Or we're not going to allow you to call immigration and you're not going to assist immigration because we, whomever we is, politicians, do not believe in that arm of the law. How confusing and confounding is that for a police officer who believes that a badge is a badge and that we help each other? And the law is the law. And the reason why they got on the job is because they care about people and they want to help people and the way they help people is they enforce the law when bad guys commit criminal acts so yes how does an average police officer manage this 
human nature says a lot of them just put their heads down and try to stay out of the fray. Those who do get into the fray, when they are in the fray, be professional and by the law, that requires the boss and the leaders in the police communities to protect their officers when they are being accused of wrongdoing by snippets on a camera that lose the context of the whole situation. I can say that I've done a lot of use of force work in my life as a lawyer for police unions. It's one of the most difficult things to defend because it's inevitably a situation that sometimes looks bad Mm -hmm. because it's hard to arrest somebody that doesn't want to be arrested. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it It never looks good. There's an awful lot of resistance and it always looks bad when you're trying to overcome that resistance. It's not pretty. So what do people do? And people are police and police are people. They will often avoid those situations because they're too hard to manage. So what can we do as police? In my mind, and this might be idealistic, police leaders have to drive the show. And this is why I admire what you're doing with your podcast because you're getting inside the heads of leaders. And at least from what I can see, most of these leaders have created kind of a little box that they live in that they manage their daily life, which we all have to do. But they got to see beyond their box and see the larger trends and see how those things are affecting policing generally. And police associations need to step up and defend the policies that we know historically have led to reductions and crime and defend why those are needed. That's so interesting because you're talking about leaders and I say that there's an awful lot of police chiefs out there that are managers. and They manage the day-to-day and they never step up. They never use the pulpit that they have to explain to society why the police do what they do and yes. what the expectations yes. are and to work with the community to say, what do you expect? Here's what we have. What would you like us to do? In other words, society isn't going to drive what the police do, but they are going to help them focus on what's important to them, quality of life crimes, those kinds of issues. Jim, we need to wind down. We could talk for quite a while, and I can only assume that we'll be back at this. But let me ask you a couple of parting questions. How do people get in touch with you? I have a website, www.securelaw, and let me spell it, secure, S-E-C-U-R-E-L-A-W, L-L-C, securelawllc.com. You'll find my email on the website. Mm -hmm. The book is available in Amazon, Borders. You say you want a revolution, a compelling and cautionary tale of what lies ahead. Because that uh, takeoff from the Beatles song, there's another book out there with that first line. So be careful what you're buying. But beyond that, I'm available in a lot of capacities. I want to get the word out. This is the message that matters to me. And I care about police officers and I care about this country. And so I thank you for the opportunity, partially, Steve, and I say this with great respect. There's a lot of people that don't want to touch this with a 10-foot pole. And it's those people who are the managers, and essentially you described, that just want to kind of put their head in the sand and just hope things get better and just deal with the circumstances that are in front of them. But we got to see it. Life is bigger than ourselves. At least that's how I manage my life. That's how I try to rationalize who Jim Pastor is. I'm a nothing. And yet I've spent 40 plus years trying to do the right thing. And all of us have to look inside of ourselves and say, what matters to me? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what is worth yeah. sacrificing for? Great. Is my country, is my family, is my God? 
not worth sacrificing for. So that's why I wrote the book. I knew I was going to get into the fray. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to get in the fray. I don't want to be called a racist. I'm not a racist. But yet, inevitably, when you're dealing with controversial subjects and biases inherent in, in all of us, people just want to rather throw the stone instead of deal with the issue. Mm -hmm. So be part of the solution, not the problem. Yeah, I have to say that this has prompted a number of questions. You dig into some things that are really very important. And I'll ask you one final question. We're talking to Jim Pastor as we wind down on the Cop Talk podcast. If you could sit down at dinner. Wow, that's a great question. It's not directly, but I admire what Abraham Lincoln did. Mm -hmm. He didn't deal with necessarily policing, but he dealt with public safety and he dealt with humanity. And that, to me, that's what policing is. It's human beings trying to keep lives safe. And what Lincoln went through and extraordinary stances he took, I quoted him a lot in my book because it was an attempt just to say a man stood up at the time this country needed it. And we have been blessed from it. But Lincoln declared martial law and he forced laws when a lot of people were afraid to do it. He actually engaged a rebellion in order to keep the country together. And it was hard. Why was it hard? Because it would probably have been easier to just appease and just allow the country to separate. But is that what we want? And ultimately, in my mind, the answer is no. But we all have to make that decision individually and collectively. And I think what you say is we have more in common than we would believe, but it requires us to listen to each other and to talk and to identify uh, problems and work on solutions, exactly what you've been saying. So I appreciate We've been talking to Jim Pastor, and he is down in beautiful Naples, Florida now after being a Chicago police okay. officer, now a lawyer and a PhD. So if you're from Chicago, do you support a couple of teams? <laughs> well, I was a South Sider, so my heart was with the White Sox and, of course, the Bears and Bulls. Well, you got to say the Bears for me. Yeah, the Bears. Yeah, the Bears. And Dick Buck is just dying. I know, dying. I know. He grew up in an area just west of where I grew up. I had friends from the neighborhood that went to high school with him. He was an absolute legend on the South Side, but, of course, he was a legend in football. But... Is it true, Jim? Bad, bad Leroy Brown was from the south side of Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. People like him. And, and you know, <laughs> Steve, there's a lot of wonderful people that are being affected by the crime in Chicago. And I care about those people. Yep. And Chicagoans are real down-to-earth people. And I try to... That's who I am. Well, thank you so much for your time, for your energy. I wish you the best of luck. So we've been talking to Jim Pastor and his book, You Say You Want a Revolution. That's another episode of the Cop Talk Podcast in the can. Thanks for listening and keep listening for other episodes coming up. If you have an idea, please reach out and let me know. Easy to find, copdocpodcast.com. I'm Steve Morielli. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Cop Doc Podcast with Dr. Steve Morielli. Steve is a retired law enforcement practitioner and manager turned academic and scholar from Worcester State University. Please tune into the Cop Doc Podcast for regular episodes of interviews with thought leaders in policing.